Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about the triple blunder, baseball, Biden, and the media. Kim Crockett, voter rights advocate, joins me in studio, and the infrastructure bill, the Marxist Trojan horse. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. America Can We Talk is sponsored by GC Works, a Dallas-based company performing advanced technology research in the oil and gas industry. And hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. I shouldn't tell you this, but I actually subscribe to the daily notification from New York Times, our kind of daily newsletter. It's allegedly news, not opinion. In this morning's email, which I did read, they actually had this statement and it is reported as though it is a fact. They're reporting a fact. They're talking about the Georgia election law. The Georgia law is part of an ongoing effort by the Republican Party to make voting more difficult mostly because Republicans believe they win when turnout is low. Throughout the whole story, allegedly factually presenting the issue about, electron about voter fraud in election, and excuse me, in Georgia, the election integrity legislation, the entire piece of the New York Times, if you only receive this, and this was your source of news, you thought you knew what was going on because after all, you read the New York Times daily newsletter, you would think you're up to speed and you would think that the story is, the issue is that Georgia has passed a clearly uh, biased, unfair law that is designed, intentionally designed to repress the, uh, re to repress voters, to be unfair about elections, to make sure that some voters don't have the opportunity to vote. These are the most, this is the way the media has covered the Georgia election law. So today on the show, in our next segment with Kim Crockett in studio with us, we're gonna talk about actually what is in the Georgia election law that is causing such fur uh, fervor. Because I'm gonna tell you something, there's nothing in it that's even remotely offensive. But in the first five today, I wanna focus on the idea that what we're really being troubled by in this whole national conversation about election integrity and about Georgia is not what happened in Georgia, not what they passed as a law, but what the media has decided to do as they tell the story in America. The media is complicit. The media are complicit in this country with telling Americans that the entire Georgia election law is designed to repress the minority vote, to make it more difficult to vote, to keep the vote tallies down. It is, and you know, I, I pondered creating just a massive ongoing you know powerpoint to play for you in this first five that is just kind of running through the way the bill is characterized in news stories not opinion pieces news stories the voter suppression bill the bill designed to limit the access to voting this is how it's described it doesn't do anything like that but the media are part of the whole plan to make sure that americans are concerned about the georgia election law and that americans are concerned that somehow washington better save us which is what i told you yesterday i'll tell you again today the reason that the left is working so hard to crack down on to scare americans about the georgia election law is because they think it will help them get steam and energy to get H.R. 1 passed. So that's the media's piece of this. I mentioned Biden also. Um, President Biden weighed in on whether or not Georgia, um, whether or not because of the Georgia election law, that Major League Baseball should move their all-star game from Georgia to somewhere else. And he said yes. Now he's trying to backpedal, and I asked Matt the Wonderful, he has a little clip I sent him, and this is Jennifer Saki. This is uh, Vice. This is President Biden's, you know, person, his spokesperson, answering questions from the media about why the president seems to be changing his mind about the um, election law and about whether or not the All Star Game should have been moved. So Matt the Wonderful, let's play that clip. So he was not dictating. Uh 
for what Major League Baseball uh, should do, that, that they should, dictating they should move the All-Star game. Uh, that is, was their decision. They made that decision. And as he stated earlier, he certainly supports that. So he does support the decision to move the game well, he, he supports them being able to make the decision and respond to what their players uh, act, you know, asks are given. Many of them are impacted, of course, by these laws. So, Mr. President, what do you think about the possibility that baseball decides to move their all-star game out of Atlanta because of this political issue? I think today's professional athletes are acting incredibly responsibly. I would strongly support them doing that. People look to them, their leaders, the very people who are victimized the most are the people who are the leaders in these in these various sports. And it's just not right. <laughs> okay. It doesn't even make sense, but okay, leaving that alone. Shortly after that, he's asked, oh, okay, well, then you must support moving the Masters golf tournament, because after all, and he, he's realizing this is not playing well in Georgia, that people in Georgia are not at all happy that the, um, the All-Star game was moved from Georgia out to Colorado, by the way, moved from the Atlanta area that is 51% black out to an area in Colorado and Denver that is under 10% black. So it's moved to a very lily white area of the country depriving Georgia of, by conservative estimates, $100 million in tourist uh, trade because people come not just to watch the game, but they stay in hotels, they stay in restaurants, they go shopping, they make a weekend out of it. They, they tourist money, $100 million lost in an area like Atlanta. Biden and the Democrats are now realizing this thing. Maybe we shouldn't have pushed so hard. So when he's asked about the question of whether or not the master should move, yet, which is never going to move, of course, let's be really clear about that. But he tried to backpedal and say, well, that's not really my business. And I'm gonna come back to a point later. I wanna just draw to your attention right now, what she just said, Jennifer Psaki. She is parsing words by saying he, President Biden, didn't dictate. He didn't dictate the move. Of course he didn't dictate. He's not in a position to dictate. She's parsing words. He used the language you just heard, very coercive, very supportive, and gets the public behind the idea that Major League Baseball should move their all-star game, which they now have done. Now that people are getting upset about it, recognizing there is a you know, $100 million loss to the community in Atlanta, he's very quickly trying to backpedal. I'll wrap up the first five by saying this. I think that conservatives have actually a tremendous opportunity to send a message to America, to uh, several messages to America. One, there's nothing wrong with the Georgia election law. Calling attention to the substance of the law calls out the left for the, the fact that they're simply lying about it, lying about what it says, lying about its impact. But number two, this whole orchestrated massive um, just, you know, tornado around the Georgia election law, more Americans will start to see that the media and corporate, some uh, aspects of corporate America are simply pushed around like small children, pushed around and talked into moving away, stomping off, taking my marbles and going home when there was no reason to do that. There's nothing wrong with the law. And actually their actions in stomping off and taking their marbles with them ends up hurting the people of Georgia. It's a tremendous opportunity for conservatives to point out that it's all theater, no substance. There is no reason for people to be stomping off from the state of Georgia because they actually managed to pass a relatively milquetoast election integrity law. And that, my very fine friends, is today's first five. I mentioned at the start of the show, we have a guest in studio. It's fun to have guests in studio. Always better to have in studio. Uh, it's Kim. Her name is Kim Crockett. She is actually visiting from Minnesota. And those of you who have Minnesota relatives will recognize her uh, accent, which I just love because my, my, all my cousins live in Minnesota. I love that. And my grandparents, I um, love that accent. But anyway, she, uh, Kim Crockett's an attorney. I actually met her a few years ago in conjunction with an event where I spoke in Minnesota. Uh, but she is a legal policy advisor to Minnesota Voters Alliance. And she's also a vote, voters' rights advocate. And the reason I want to have her come is to bring, she has been in her life a founder of a fabulous conservative think tank, or co-founder of a fabulous conservative think tank, written many, many substantive policy papers, really able to dive into the weeds, understand the issues, understand the law, a brilliant lawyer by background, a graduate of Penn, UPenn Law School, so brilliant lawyer. Um, and she's really an advocate for voters and for the idea of actual voter integrity 
in America. So I thought we'd have her come on with us today, since she's visiting Texas, to talk about what the Georgia law really has in it, what is bad or not bad about it. And then also, I want to have her talk to you about something that's occurring. Uh, I mentioned it briefly on the show last week, I think it was. Uh, Mark Elias and the Democracy Docket is a massive um, orchestrated effort by leftists to eliminate election integrity provisions in law and states around this country. I want to have her tell you more about that because this is what we're up against. People who want real election integrity need to deal with what Mark Elias is doing. So without further ado, I want to welcome Kim Crockett to our show. Hi, Kim. Hi, thank you, Debbie. So glad you're here. This is uh, going to be fun. Okay, so we actually talk in the phone a lot. This is like talking like on the phone only in person. Okay. I, I, knew, I knew this would be fun. So I have an accent. Do I have an accent? Matt? The wonderful? Okay. Do you not I hear do? this Minnesota accent? <laughs> Speak up. Oh, yeah, he, 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 yeah, he said yes. It's like, I don't hear it anymore. So okay. I, for, I forget, but I'll have a draw by the end of the week because I'm here for an entire week. So. Yes. Well, you know, I grew up in New York, so I don't have a drawl or a Minnesota accent, but I do love that Minnesota accent. It Good. just sounds like my grandparents. <laughs> it just sounds like family. But anyway, um, so first I want to just, you know, Quickly in your background, I would love if you told just a little bit about the substance of what you've done, including things like having worked at the Center of the American Experiment and then working the Charlemagne Institute, because you're really, you're a scholar extraordinaire, and I want to have you get to share that a little bit. Well, um, I would actually go back a little further and say um, that I enjoyed private practice uh, and uh, being in, the, in corporate practice, general counsel in the development world, real estate development world, but then I was lucky to get married and have children. And I stayed home with them. And I always brag about that. Yep. Um, you know, our culture is putting careers for women over families and children. And I am a conservative and I do believe in moms uh, and dads raising their own children. So I had a wonderful dozen years. And then I went into the policy world, as you noted, and did a lot of different uh, uh, things, including, I think we might even get into it a little bit with the infrastructure bill, um, where the federal government's trying to tell us how to live, where to live, uh, you know, using uh, the scare of global weirding or whatever they call it these days. So uh, a lot of different areas of policy, but a couple of years ago, I looked at the landscape and said, election law is where we need to be. Um, you know, uh, with Georgia, it's funny that the um, that the whole game thing came up because, frankly, election law is the ball game right now for us as American right. citizens. Uh, if we lose uh, our uh, confidence in the election system because our vote isn't really counting the way it's supposed to, um, this is over. And uh, I, I was just uh, teaching a, a class of about 25 young people in St. Paul recently who were homeschooled. And they have a civics course where they, they learn about wow, important things. Wow, that's fun that you did that. Okay. Yeah, it was great. And I asked the class, uh, it was a mix of you know, 18, 19, 17-year-old uh, young men and women. And I said, what will happen if America loses its confidence in the vote? And the young women said, well, people won't want to vote anymore, right? Amen. And the, the boys, though, over on the other side of the room said, there'll be revolution. I said, bingo. So that's kind of where we are right now. So, so I say that HR1, which Congress had the audacity to call the For the <laughs> People's Act. Yep. Stop blowing smoke up my skirt, Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> okay. Uh, here we are, the people yeah. saying, really? Yeah. No, it's a, it's a federal takeover. And, uh, and I think you're right when you said that all of the lies around this very modest uh, election bill that was signed into law last, just last Thursday in Georgia is a way of, uh, I think you're absolutely right, and I hadn't thought of that. They're just campaigning to get H.R. 1 through. Right. Um, That's what I think. So that the federal government, Congress just takes over everything. Um, and that, of course, would be an unconstitutional move. Um, and we can get into Article 1, Section 4 that lets states administer 
uh, elections. Uh, a lot of people don't know that. There's a split authority between the feds and the states, and there has been ever since we became a republic in 1789. So uh, that's a long-winded hello. Uh, but if, but if, <laughs> you would hello, like yeah. your, if you'd like your um, listeners, your audience to hear what was actually in that Georgia bill, I have little notes because who actually knows what was in it other than it's Jim Crow, for oh, God's yeah, sake. Jim Crow. Actually, I saw a lot of blowback. That was an expression President Biden used talking about the Georgia law, made allusion to it as a Jim Crow thing. Right. It was a great opportunity. Unfortunately, there was one black civil rights organization that spoke up and said, this is insulting. This right. is insulting to right. the actual civil rights movement that you, President Biden, would call this law Jim Crow after all the work it, done. It cheapens done. the term. Oh, it cheapens the term. It, right. It's outrageous. Right. Yeah. Let's reserve that for when we really do have uh, discrimination uh, yeah. in, in voting. So just just a quick rundown. I have a couple yeah, of little go, go bullet ahead. points. Wait, so what's in the Georgia bill, this owner's bill? And, and I really ha I had to go back and look myself because we were so busy dealing with the lies, you know, and this massive PR effort to smear um, good election law. It wasn't just a partisan thing, but they're smearing good election yep. law. So I wasn't even that impressed by what the Georgia state legislature proposed. But let's look at what they did. I call it Georgia sausage making, because like a lot of legislation, you've got to, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans have to get together and figure out what they can pass and put in front of the governor. So what did it really do? Well, it expanded early voting, adding weekends so that so that hardworking folks who don't have a Monday through Friday or can't get a Tuesday off or whatever, uh, have other opportunities to vote and it added more hours as well. Yeah. I wanna jump in on that one, expanding yeah. the weekend, uh, making the weekend because that was one thing being pushed by the pro-Democrat crowd and right. getting this, this sausage made in, in Georgia, saying there are many people who are working people that can't get there during the week. And so this was, yeah, we'll have to make sure they can vote in the weekend because some working people cannot get away from their job. Yeah, and county administrators will have the opportunity if it's, if it's popular to add Sundays. I don't think that's a good idea. I think Sunday's busy enough. Uh, you know, for moms especially, it's a nice day off, but you know, it gives them that option so it's flexible. Um, they did say that uh, you need to request an absentee ballot a couple of days earlier, but not because they're trying to suppress a vote. They're trying to make sure that you have time to turn in your absentee ballot if you vote that way and get it processed so it's counted. Right. Isn't the time frame? I'm pretty sure in Georgia, the time frame is you can request an absentee ballot as far as 11 weeks ahead of time and up until 11 days before the election. It's a long period it's of time. It's ridiculous. It's, it's not like they cut it down long. to a 24-hour no, period. They cut off about three three days or yeah. something. You have to get it in a little bit sooner. Um, but that's so that it can be processed in a responsible manner so that people aren't um, you know, pressured to uh, not check things, right. uh, not check things carefully, um, it did require voter ID for absentee balloting. Well, of course, what is absentee balloting? It's it's supposed to mimic voting in person and have all the safeguards of in-person voting. But unfortunately, Georgia was really sloppy and and doing things incorrectly by not requiring voter identification. So you're going to have to have you know, like a driver's license number or something. And why they didn't have this originally, I don't understand, but it was sloppy because you you don't have uh, verification of the identity of the voter. And, and if people are allowed to vote who aren't eligible, uh, who are uh, committing fraud, for example, or mistakenly voting, that means that my vote didn't count. Right, it cancels out a legal vote. Right. Uh, on that point about the ID requirement for absentee voting, everyone knows when you vote in person, you have to have an ID. And so somehow you not had an elevated- Not in my state. Yeah. Not you, in Minnesota. You don't have to have an ID to vote no. in Minnesota? No. Okay, you gotta you fix that. To You're be, from Minnesota. You don't have to be registered. You can do it on the day of the election. I mean. You guys are used to pretty reasonable laws down here in Texas, but we're talking to a broader audience here, right? A lot of you are yeah. from other states like mine. We haven't had voter identification in a long time. And we have something called vouching, where I can walk into a precinct 
and someone can say, oh, I know who she is and that she lives in the precinct and I am allowed to vote. And, and it isn't provisional. It's not, I was about to say it's not it's even provisional. It's not provisional. What does okay. provisional mean? Because some people might be saying, well, what are they talking about? It means that the vote is set aside and your identity and eligibility as a voter is verified and then it's counted. No, it's just counted. And once it's counted, it's gone. It's okay, in, yeah. so someone, I mean a Canadian, anyone, were to make their way into <laughs> yes. Minnesota, on, I mean, because it's nearby, right. uh, on we election day. We try to keep day. those Canadians out, especially on election day, don't you know? But, but yeah, I mean, we don't always they succeed. This is, they show up and you could say, or anyone could say, yeah, yeah, I know all seven of those people, I know all of them. They go, okay, and yeah. they get to vote. That's yeah, how it works. Yeah, and I think you're allowed to vouch for something like up to 14 people or something. It's insane. Okay. It's designed for fraud. It's, oh, it's like it, it it's is. like a sin. So it's the Fraud Enablement right. Act. So, so down in Georgia, yes. they actually <laughs> closed a hole. Yeah, this is just responsible. So okay. that when you vote in Georgia now, you can be pretty, you know, you can be more assured that that absentee ballot is being cast by somebody who's eligible to vote. Um, here was a compromise that I didn't like. Another one was they're going to allow drop boxes that were added. And this is something I worry about across the country. Um, because of COVID. And this is where we're getting really lazy, by the way, as voters. Well, I just want to drop it off. Well, first of all, how do you know it's going to get to be counted? So don't think that's a good idea. You certainly would never want to put it in the mail, but people do. But they, they've decided to make drop boxes an official thing in Georgia. I think that was a compromise. Yeah, didn't they reduce the number of drop boxes available? Yes. Yeah. So and they made the distribution, the location of those drop boxes, um, uh, more equitable, if you will. If I could use that word, it's so loaded. But it's not just in heavily democratic uh, counties and precincts now, which is where they largely were for both the general and the senatorial race on January 5th. Okay, that's exactly what I was gonna say. Yeah. There was so much yeah. uh, playing with the entire voting process in Georgia, allegedly due to COVID. Uh, and had yeah, to, yeah, that, that was, was talk a about dicey explanation, but, yeah, um, Trojan but they had, and then outside money. So they had outside money oh, coming to Georgia offering Zuckerberg mail. money. We haven't uh, even gotten yeah, into that. ballot box, and it was mo right. mostly concentrated in Democrat majority areas. Right, right, and I, I, saw, and who, I saw some Who could of imagine that. why would that be? And these boxes were not secure by any right. stretch of the imagination. So that's the other thing, is that they have to be located in um, a vote, an early voting center, so that in theory, it's a more secure box. I think that makes it less secure in some cases because I don't trust all the election officials involved. And isn't that a sad commentary? Yeah, That I is. don't trust people. Because I wouldn't have said that just a couple of years ago. But unfortunately, the people working for cities and counties across the United States are partisans, uh, just like mm -hmm. the Postal Service, which carries our absentee ballots, was aggressively campaigning for Biden. And oh, yet yeah. we were expected to hand over our absentee ballots right. to this postal union and then say, sure, oh, we'll I trust you. <laughs> Sure, yeah. we'll we'll get we'll do this all cricket, right? Okay. On the voter ID thing, one more thing about that: the absentee ballot. Prior to having a voter ID required for absentee ballots, all that was happening was the ballot gets received and there's a signature on right. it, and someone has some ballpark job, some kind of estimate. Yeah, I think this looks like it probably belongs to this. So you're you're kind of you're comparing a, it to what's on file. What's on file? Probably with and, the DMV or when they requested the ballot, which actually might have been. More, this might be better for the voters who prefer absentee ballots because you do run into the subjective possibility or the possibility that subjectively someone might say, well, I don't think these two match. So your vote because your signature wasn't similar mm -hmm. enough on that day gets tossed versus this is you got to have a government issued ballot, uh, government issued ID like you do every other way, right. except in Minnesota. And, well, <laughs> in, in, in actually in Minnesota and other states, when that absentee ballot comes in under normal circumstances, pre-COVID and hopefully post-COVID, there's a whole checklist of things, including your driver's license number and other information so that the absentee ballot board can confirm that we have an eligible voter in front of us and they completed the ballot properly. So yep. and this is just all about, folks, this is, this is not about suppression of the vote. 
This is all about making sure that at the end of election night or election week or season or whatever election we're calling month. it yeah. now, it was 46 days of early voting in my state. We started voting on September 18th, I kid you not. Wow, um, as well. <laughs> yeah, Georgia, Georgia added a couple weeks of early voting. Not a good idea, but the, at the goal here, folks, is that when I vote, when you vote, um, and we hear the results, we go, okay, I, I won, we won, or I lost, and I need to fight harder next time, or work harder next time, or have better candidates, or whatever it might be. But we all look at each other and say, that was a fair contest. Yeah. And, you know, Got to get good, our ideas good, out there better next good time. Good for you for yeah. winning or whatever. But that's in 2016, after Trump won, there were a lot of Democrats, including my U.S. Senator, Amy Klobuchar, uh, from Minnesota, who were saying, something's wrong here. Something's wrong. We oh. don't trust. Yeah. We don't trust these tabulators. We don't trust the system. And then in 2020, you had conservatives, Republicans saying, you know, something's terribly wrong here. So if America could agree on that, like America, can we, can we talk about what we do agree on, which is that we're we're starting to lose confidence in the outcome of these elections. And that's and we not, all should that's really not want. good for any of us. Right. It's not good for the free world. Right. One last thing. I want to turn to talk about what Mark Elias is up to, but one more thing about this Georgia law. Yeah, there's a couple and, and more to, points. To, to, to we could talk away. about that the whole hour, What? but the, we're not going to, right? right? We've got other stuff to cover. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but one last thing that I want to say about this law in Georgia, it uh, brought about a change, which I would love to happen. We need this change in Texas. In Georgia, they have what they call jungle primary, right. and this is true in California, and I don't know, probably Minnesota. Every I don't know where, but it's true in Texas, which is when you have an open seat, like we have one right now here in Texas, where we had most unfortunately Congressman Ron Wright, a great friend of mine, great guy, passed on. His seat is empty, so everyone, they got a, I don't even know, it's like 23 people are mm. running for this one open seat. And so you have in a day where everyone can go vote for their choice to replace Congressman Wright uh, in Congress. But the way it's set up is 23 people in the race, and then they take, assuming no one gets over 50%, which is very unlikely, they just take the top two vote getters. So you could have two Democrats in the runoff as opposed to giving the Republican voters a choice and a Democrat voters a choice. Jungle, jungle primary says two top voters, top vote getters get to be in the general election. And we could actually face a situation in Texas where we had a Republican held seat, but we get when the primary is over because of jungle primary laws, two Democrats, and that's the only choice the voters in that district would have. That's one thing eliminated in Georgia. And it's one thing that in California has stymied any efforts to organize the Republican voters in California because they have jungle primaries often end up with no one to vote for on their ballot. So do you, do you have jungle primaries in Minnesota? Do no. You know? No? No, we, we have other bad things going on, obviously, but we don't have that. And, and frankly, the move against jungle primaries helps both parties it just depends on what perspective you're you're coming from. That's just a good, that's just a good approach to 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 voting. To, yeah, giving people to, to elections right. choices. Um, the other thing I would note is, um, aside from shortening that runoff so that it takes place, it took would have taken place between uh, Warnoff, I call him Warlock, um, and Loeffler, and then Purdue and Ossoff. Yeah. It would have been in early December instead. So they've changed that. And part of it is when I was in Atlanta trying to help with election integrity for about a week in January, these election officials, I worked mostly DeKalb County, these are all largely black women who are hardworking public servants. And in this county, they were exhausted. They had been through primaries and jungle primaries and a general election, whatever. They had been working day and night for months. For months, right. I have never seen people so tired. And they were very, very good at what they did, by the way. And they were and they were wonderful, uh, wonderful to work with. The rules were against, uh, I think, Purdue uh, in yeah. particular, winning that one, you know, from the jungle primary on. But one of the things that they did also, just to conclude Georgia, because now you know the real story versus the, 
lies about Jim Crow is they pulled some of the authority from the Secretary of State yeah. and put it, brought it back into the state legislature, frankly, where it belongs. Where the Constitution said it belongs. Article 1, Section 4, drafted back in 1787 in Philadelphia. This was the deal that they cut with the states. Because remember, the states were like, we don't want a strong federal government. Uh, but Hamilton and others were arguing, but you have to have one or this falls apart. Yeah. They cut a deal. In Article 1, Section 4, folks, it's easy to look up. The Constitution's a tiny little thing. I carry one around all the time. It said the states get to handle the time, place, and manner of um, both federal and, of course, their own elections. That yep. wasn't even on the table, right? And Congress can step in if it needs to, and it has with Civil War amendments, women getting suffrage in 1920, civil rights legislation, rights, yeah. some good, some, some bad. But it's been a decent partnership uh, since 1789 when the Republic was started, you know, kicked in under the Constitution. And then what's come along? H.R. 1, the For the People's Act, right? Okay. Yeah, complete I say abrogation of that. Yeah, on HR one, um, I've called the Permanent Fraud, Permanent Vote Fraud Enablement Act. Every conceivable trick yeah. used by leftists to steal elections are not just permitted under HR one. Mandated, every state must do it. It is the end of free and fair elections. Right. We could probably talk about that the rest of today, but I do want to make sure we get time to talk about Mar Mark, Mark Elias, Elias is doing right. um, and also then get to our third topic for today, which we're also glad you want to talk about that too. But on Mark Elias, we you heard the name Mark Elias. If you're thinking, I've heard that guy's name before. Um, he is a, an attorney with Perkins Coie and that's the firm that got involved in aiding and abetting Hillary Clinton and planting mm -hmm. the seeds of the Trump-Russia collusion hoax. The entire Trump-Russia story cooked up as a smear by the Hillary campaign, Perkins Coie involved in that, Mark Elias involved in that. Now, after having basically eviscerated uh, or at least greatly damaged the first three years of President Trump's presidency with a cloud of Trump-Russia collusion farce over him, right. now Mark Elias has jumped onto this democracy docket. Maybe it's been going on for a long time. Since 2008. Okay, so tell our listeners, please, what democracy docket is all about. So in 2008, um, Mark Elias was a much younger lawyer. I was too, and so were you back then. and. Um, he came into Minnesota um, when uh, Al Franken and uh, Senator Norm Coleman, U.S. Senator Norm, Norm Coleman, were, were neck and neck. Yeah. It was a close election. And Elias came into the state and sharp elbowed his way through a recount process that ended up with 312 votes to put Al Franken into the United States Senate after eight and a half months of duking it out. And frankly, the Republicans that were involved in it were not up to the task. They weren't up for the fight. They didn't, they didn't know how to do the bare knuckle, oh yeah, you wanna count that ballot? No, we're not gonna count that ballot. We'll fight you just as hard as you're fighting us. They were gentlemen and polite and Minnesotan about it and we lost. So I did not know that was Mark That Elias. was Elias. Oh my gosh. And I don't know what he did before 08, but what I know is he cut his teeth in my home state, and frankly, the country has never been the same again, because what did Al Franken do? He went into the U.S. Senate, and I think that week voted for Obamacare. Yeah, That yeah. was the vote, that was the 60th vote that was needed, right, in the U.S. Senate. And, um, and then he came back two years later and knocked out Tom Emmer, who's now in Congress, but Tom had won, it looked like, the, uh, the gubernatorial race and Elias came in and found enough votes for Mark Dayton, so it seemed, and Emmer backed off, kind of like Nixon did in 1960, and said, okay, fine, we're not gonna do this. Um, and we ended up with a very liberal uh, Democrat in Minnesota uh, for, for eight years. I mean, so this man has done terrible damage to the state of Minnesota in terms of just who won. 
and yeah. changing the the outcome of, of really important wow. elections. So so on from there, he founded this thing called the Democracy Docket. And essentially what it is is a law firm for the Democratic National Committee and its affiliates, including, by the way, the League of Women Voters, who, that's supposed to be a nonpartisan 501c3. Hello, IRS, are you listening? Yeah. But <laughs> they are was on the left. Think, yeah, okay. Right. And then other groups of disabled citizens, language um, disabled, you know, people who don't speak English or whatever who are trying to vote. And those are his constituencies. So he comes, let me just tell you the story of what he did in Minnesota. But this, if you go to Democracy Docket, it's all, they don't hide their game plan. And we have no counter on the, on the right, by the yeah. way. There is no conservative democracy docket. And I'm trying to do something about that, but it's like herding cats, right? But maybe we'll get there this time. Go on to democracy docket and you'll see a map of the United States and click on your state and it'll tell you about the current states, but also look for impact on past litigation. So in my state, I'll tell you the story of what he did to us just for 2020. He came in and conducted something that I call collusive consent decrees. He finds friendly secretaries of state, like Steve Simon in Minnesota, who is a DFLer, a Democratic farm labor uh, guy. Communist. Uh, well, he's... I'm he, joking. He's, he's far to the left. Yeah. He used to be a liberal Democrat, by the way, and somebody that I admired back when he was in the state legislature. By and large, I thought he was an honest broker, but he's moved hard to the left, like a lot of people in, the, in that party. Um, so he comes in, finds a friendly secretary of state with a friendly governor who's not going to balk, Tim Walls, and pretends to sue the state of Minnesota over what? Um, sues for an extension of election date seven days beyond November 3rd, uh, waived uh, signatures for absentee ballots so that you didn't have to have one. Again, you didn't have to verify through a witness, as the state law requires, that you are who you say you are when you signed that absentee ballot. And then it created a presumption um, for postmarks. It waived postmarks, in other words, on absentee ballot yep. envelopes, so that anything could come in without a postmark, and it was assumed to have been filed on or before election Timely, day. Yeah. So that was one consent decree. And they were in front of a judge who was the former state political director for Senator Amy Klobuchar, among other, I mean, she has a resume, a DFL, a Democrat res resume, you know, she's yeah. like the debutante at the Democratic ball, right? And I've joked, I wonder if the three of them went out, if Elias, Simon, and the judge went out for drinks and dinner and clinked, you know, like, wow, look what we did. Um, so that's the kind of thing he's been doing around the country, not just in Minnesota, but he finds friendly state officials and comes in and pretends to sue them, and they pretend to defend it. Um, and he fights for things like ballot harvesting. And he's w he didn't win that one in Minnesota, but he tried. Um, and he knocks out state law. So in, I've got some good news, though. It's not all bad news. Um, some good people came in and, and walked alongside two Trump electors in my state and sued Secretary Simon and said, this is, a, this is a violation of both the U.S. and state constitution. You are violating the authority of the state legislature to make election laws. You've just, you know, gone around them. And, and, and this is all being done in violation of the law. And they actually won that case at the, at the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, Federal Court yep. of Appeals. Yep. Um, it ended up being moot because um, those electors weren't called to, to vote for uh, our past president because uh, Biden won Minnesota. But it was an important legal victory. Uh, so these are the, if you wondered why election laws, like in Pennsylvania, that was Elias. That's what I want to try to get at. So Elias' right. democracy docket, it finds, and I want to ask you one question about the vehicle he uses, but it finds plaintiffs, finds people who will join in a lawsuit. Right. He has friendly state officials who, whom he's pretending he's suing, right. but they're actually they're fake all lawsuits. in cahoots. 
Yeah, they're fake lawsuits. Yeah, they're fake lawsuits. And so the Secretary of State either doesn't defend or defends poorly or says, actually, now that I look at it, you're right. So Let's negotiate a deal. Yeah, and so they settle, essentially giving him, so he is undermining existing election integrity yes. legislation in these states via this tactic. Yes, and, and he has hundreds of suits that were filed. This, he, he's been operating for years. I mean, this is a lead up to 2020. But, but in 2020, there were, there were dozens and dozens of suits across the country. Um, and um, in some cases, it's a friendly governor. Um, in Pennsylvania, it was a friendly state Supreme Court. Just went, yeah, they did, they were hands the up. Yep. What's the problem here? Right. So I want your listeners to be aware of that name, Mark Elias, Democracy Docket, but he's not an individual. This is not like an individual out there acting. He, this is the this is the election law firm for the Democratic National Committee and all of its affiliates, and there is no counterpart. I was going to say, just like you said earlier, right. we don't fight like they fight. We just don't right. fight like they fight. We don't think of these things. Are the conservative side? We don't take the long view. We don't think strategically, and we don't take the long view. So this is something I'm encouraging people to fund and execute where we analyze his business plan, figure out how to, and figure out how to not only beat him, but get mm -hmm. ahead of him so that, and again, folks, the goal here is that we get back to a time, Debbie and I remember it. I mean, <laughs> we're very young ladies, but we do yes. remember when on election night, we all just kind of looked at each other and said, okay, that's it, those. That's the result, and we believe the result. Yep. We know there was always a little bit of cheating, and like Philly and Chicago, and down here in Texas, we heard in 1960 there might have been some cheating. But overall, Americans looked at each other and said, "Okay, that's the outcome of the election, and we and we win or lose, but we can fight another day." Yep. You know, Kim, we could talk the rest of today just about HR one, Mark Elias, but I do want I have a third topic for today yes. and I yes. kinda wanna get to it because I think it's yes. really important to understand. I, I, I say this so often. Uh, so I'm kinda shift over to our uh, last topic of the day and I call it an infrastructure bill, uh, the Marxist Trojan horse. And um, to end home ownership. And I want to tell you very quickly why I say that. And Kim has a world of knowledge on this subject too. We actually had lunch before we came here and I was telling her my third topic. She said, oh, I have a lot to say about that too. So I'll tell you very quickly why this is so consequential. You may have heard that in the United States Senate, the parliamentarian has ruled that the infrastructure bill that the Democrat Biden and the Democrats want to put through uh, can be put through using the reconciliation process. We've talked about that many times, and I'm just going to summarize by saying, meaning that there is no filibuster rule applied to this legislation, and therefore, 50 Democrats in the Senate, with the deciding vote to be cast by the President of the Senate, who is the Vice President, who is Kamala Harris, meaning that mm -hmm. this infrastructure bill can go through the Senate without any support from Republicans. It's already gone through the House. And when people hear infrastructure, they think, oh, this is great. You're fixing bridges. That's a great thing. You know, we have a bridge I could use fixing. And I want to be sure you understand what they are doing in the name of infrastructure. Just one piece of it. Remember back when it was in 2015, President Obama was still president and his uh, department of, um, of his HUD secretary, uh, Julian Castro, announced how they had come up with this great new idea. And the uh, uh, acronym was AFFP, Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing. Affirmatively Furthering ha Fair Housing. Say that the, really fast, like six times. Yeah, I know. I didn't even do well at one time. Stumbled. Uh, but the gist of it was Obama was trying to say that the federal government was going to use its power under HUD, you know, housing, urban development, use its power to address. And let me just tell you what they were trying to do re-engineer nearly every neighborhood, impose preferred racial and ethnic composition on every neighborhood, right. densify housing, uh, force changes in transportation, develop a business development in suburbs and city alike, and basically taking away the authority of local zoning authorities, local city and county governments, and having all of the way we think of housing controlled by the federal government under the auspices of making things fair. Always the Democrat argument, they're trying to make things fair. So under fair housing, the goal was they're going to use power uh, and authority of the federal government 
to take down, um, to eliminate the idea um, of local control. And basically, it is a mastermind. Picture China, these massive, massive, you know, uh, multifamily, uh, mile high, whatever they are, apartment complexes, and Russia, everyone, this is the idea, forced force very close in housing uh force um densely packed I'm trying to say the word uh, anyway densely stack packed. and pack i call it stack, stack and, and pack. pack yeah that's a good yeah. expression so that was the idea so when trump came along uh he said uh-uh affp was diminished he finally announced we're not really going to do this and then in the biden campaign when he was running for president in 2020 he had this as part of his package of things to abolish biden was running on to the extent he ran any campaign, abolish the police, ICE, bail, borders, all of the above we're seeing him do. But Biden also had this, we're gonna, we're gonna get after, we're gonna um, really get after this affirmatively furthering fair housing. He was extending it even more so because he had been in his housing plan, he was talking about embracing something that Cory Booker came up with. So Cory Booker had this strategy for essentially ending single family zoning. So I don't know where all you happy listeners live. Some of you live in apartments or condos, some in single family homes, but this is the federal government under Cory Booker saying, you know what? We should orchestrate the expenditure of federal dollars, which means your tax dollars you sent in to end single family housing. He was talked about the idea you have to, he was trying to, this is Cory Booker and Biden completely embraced this idea of Cory Booker's this idea, combined the Obama-Biden administration's radical AFFH regulation with Booker's strategy, which was essentially to make little downtowns in the suburbs so nobody has to drive anywhere, everyone lives densely packed in, don't need these single-family zoning anymore. So now, back the infrastructure bill of this year, 2021, on steroids, they are going to include in this bill funding to go to local jurisdictions, city and county jurisdictions, essentially not forcing them to embrace AFF, you know, affirmatively furthering fair housing, not to force them to accept what Cory Booker proposed, but to make it so financially uh, preferable to the city and county governments that they'll all take the federal money and agree to these ideas of redoing how we live, where we live, whether we are even permitted to have single family zoning, single family home zoning in, in places in anywhere in the country. This is already in the bill. This is in the infrastructure bill. I wanted to lay that groundwork to say, first of all, Kim, you've talked a lot about the idea of kind of Marxism in the broad way. But to me, the, the first, beside all the specifics we can go into, I don't even want to agree as a constitutionalist, as an American, that the federal government should be enticing local jurisdictions to end single family zoning. It's, it's, like, it seems it's a Marxist orchestration of society. What do you think? Well, right. It's, it's, if, if it's not totalitarian, it's authoritarian at least. Um, this is very dangerous. And, and we were having these discussions back during the Obama years and thought we had, you know, safely moved away from it. Um, it's not just stack and pack or high density housing that's being pushed for s ur urban areas and then metro areas. Um, but it, it's combined with light rail. And again, your listeners might say, well, what's wrong with that? I love the idea of taking the train. I love trains. <laughs> okay, so you've got two kids. Maybe you're working. Where, how do you get your kids to work? If you don't have a car, and this, it's very anti-parking too. It's very anti-car. Yeah. So you've got two kids, you're working, uh, or maybe not, but you're just trying to get to your life um, during the day, maybe the grocery store or a doctor's appointment or shopping or whatever. How are you getting around? Um, if all you have, you gotta get out of your apartment, you know, you don't have a backyard anymore. And they seem to think that young people don't want those, by the way, or that people in general don't want those anymore. And then you're taking a train everywhere. You'd be on a train all day long. You'd never get anywhere. I think we have a lot of cars racing around right behind, here in the freeway. behind <laughs> us here. So it, it's very authoritarian. Uh, it denies actually the core of our American dream, which is mobility, uh, both economic mobility uh, and, uh, and cause you know what? Most people actually do have cars, believe it or not. 
uh, economic mobility so you can get to work, say in under X number of minutes, uh, but also to be able to live your life uh, quick, you know, and, and be efficient and have fun doing it. Um, so this is a complete denial of it. And they're just very, very good at slipping this stuff through or marketing it in a way. They, they were arguing in the Obama years, Debbie, that young people preferred to live in the cities and you know the downtown life and they don't want cars and all of that. Well, one of the things that's happened, and Joel Kotkin is a, is a great scholar in this area for your listeners who are very smart, I'm sure, to look up. Young people don't want to be in stack and pack housing where their only option is light rail. You know, maybe for a year or two, like out of college or something. But once you get married and have children and all of that, which I encourage people to do, um, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And then just one more point. Uh, I know I talk a lot. Um, I don't talk a lot, only you do. No. <laughs> this, this was a plan to turn the entire metro area out, you know, all throughout the United States, metro areas into democratic strongholds. That's where I was going with this, but right. go ahead, you can elaborate no, on my No, no, I mean, well, think about it. Um, they control everything. Um, they, they wanted to drive populations into these, you know. Densely packed, multifamily units. Right, right. And some people are gonna stay and stick, or stick around for that. Um, but the profile of people who maybe want to be in that or would, ended up, would end up having to be in it is, is much more likely to be a Democrat voter than a Republican voter. So this was a political plan. It's devious. It's devious. It's really it's, bad. I was going to hit a couple of points about, no, number one, I forgot to yeah. mention and tell you all about it. What they're calling this, what the Biden team is calling this and pushing it in the infrastructure bill is ending exclusionary zoning. Right. So they're saying essentially, you know, we're not trying to dictate people's lives. We're just trying to end exclusionary zoning. And we're so, we're kind of trained now to say, oh, something's exclusionary. That sounds bad. We should be against it. It's exclusionary. What they mean is take away all options for American citizens to pursue the dream of home ownership. Home ownership. It does not yeah. mean everyone has to pursue a home, wanting to own a home. There are plenty of people of all ages and backgrounds who say they don't want the responsibility of a home or a yard. They want a condo or an apartment. But the idea of America, the basic idea of America is freedom. And the ways in which this is so profoundly un-American, and believe me, folks, they will do this while you're in your sleep. But while they will, it is economic mobility, is this whole idea. And I want to make this point and about why mobility. people. Sorry? And social mobility. And social mobility. Right. Many people live in inner cities, and they have the dream, if I right. work hard, save my money, I can get out of this, this apartment complex, and I can live in the suburbs. That is their right to want that. And that it rewards people who work hard to say, yeah, I get to get out of my city condensed area and get out in the suburbs. I want to have parks. I want a yard. It's a freedom thing. It's a freedom thing for people to be able to pursue that and to be rewarded for doing that by having being able to pursue that option. They're saying here, we're just going to cut all this out. Mm -hmm. So there's economic mobility, social mobility, the whole concept of property rights property rights, what they're doing under this is saying, we're going to eliminate a whole category of property rights that you think you have, but we're not going to tell you we're taking it away. We're just going to make it impossible to have. You're not going to have those property rights. And the whole thing about anything that ends up through orchestrated manipulation, regulation, whatever nice term they put for it is, what they give it to, like or ending exclusionary zoning, they're confining your freedom. They're saying, here's where Americans are going to live. Here's how you're going to live. You're not going to have a car anymore. I remember the Great Reset, one of the big things is, you're not gonna have a car, you're not gonna own anything, and you're not gonna care. That's what the Great Reset, actually one of their basic things was, is you're not gonna care you don't have property. But I wanna hit, this, so the role of government, I wanna hit on, there is no justification in the American system of law and our idea of representational government of a constitutional republic to have the government through hook and crook orchestrating right. your future freedom to live where you want. And I gotta tell you, you're talking about how millennials react to this. I had this thought about how, you know, you could get a, a room full of 25 year olds and tell them all about this. And they'd say, well, okay, I, I don't, why do I really care? Because my life's not gonna change. Or even people now living in the suburbs say, well, my life isn't gonna change. 
what will happen? Maybe it won't change tomorrow. It, this is like why I called a Trojan horse. It sounds innocuous. It sounds even maybe kind of friendly. But in 10 years and 20 years, and nowhere in America are you permitted to develop new developments with single family homes. And no more in America can you retain the character of your neighborhood of other people who worked hard. It's not a racial thing. It's, it's just a worked hard to move up to own a home. You're not going to be able to enjoy the fruits of your labor. You're going to be in a centralized, orchestrated, controlled by the government area. And before you know it, your freedom is gone. We're almost out of time. One more point, though. Well, think about it. Um, since Obama, um, you have the government trying to take control of health care. You have the government now trying to take control of where we live, how we live, how we get around transportation, um, how we consume energy. I mean, all of these things. It's just, it, and it's actually pretty, pretty rapid. On the housing stuff, home ownership is a traditional vehicle for creating wealth. Yeah. And they know it. And uh, it's not so much that the house creates wealth, not all markets are hot, you know, where things are going up 10, 20, 30% all the time. It's more that if, you're, if you wanna be a homeowner, there's certain habits you have to develop. Yeah. Discipline, work, saving, paying the mortgage on time so you don't go into foreclosure, paying your utility bills on time. All of those things are personal habits. And this will undermine the country in that way and deny people, frankly, minorities, the, the opportunity to live that American dream and move into it and be independent thinking people and make all of us dependent on them, the federal power, because what they can give us, they can take away. And that's what's going on. That's where it gets totalitarian very, very quickly. Oh, I love that. I think it's a very legitimate use of, uh, term to call us totalitarian. Unfortunately, as I often say, we're, we have more topics on time. We're out of time today. I do want to remind our listeners that Thursday is our one day a week, which is our members only show. That's tomorrow. Our in-studio guest tomorrow, the small in-studio audience, is Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. You still have plenty of time to join. If you'd like to join America Can We Talk, you go to our website, americacanwetalk.org, and on the homepage, under members, drop down, hit join. Very simple. You, it's a $5 a month or $50 a year, and you can watch every Thursday show online at our website, americacanwetalk.org tomorrow's show, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. A week from tomorrow is actually uh, Rafael Cruz, who's Senator Ted Cruz's dad, uh, mm -hmm. of whom I'm very fond. He translated my book into Spanish for me, so we've had lengthy conversations about the meaning of the Constitution and natural rights, all sorts of wonderful, deep thoughts about America. So uh, those are that's our membership plan. If you're listening and you don't subscribe to our newsletter, please go to americacanwetalk.org, hit subscribe. You get a once a week newsletter from me. The newsletter comes out usually on Friday, but sometimes it's Saturday. And it has links to everything we talked about during the previous week. Great way to catch up on this show if you miss it during the week. Great way to share this show. I'd love to have you subscribe to America Can We Talk. And I hope you can tune in tomorrow with us on our Members Only Thursday. Love to have you join us. At the close of every show, I tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we started our show out today talking about triple blunder, baseball, Biden and the media, Major League Baseball is looking ridiculous, moving the all-star game away from Atlanta, hurting the black business community, new location in Denver is less than 10% black, has photo ID required to buy a beer and to vote, same thing as in Georgia, but somehow it's problematic when Georgia did that. Uh, Biden is looking ridiculous. Saki, mm -hmm. who's his uh, spokesperson, says Biden didn't dictate the Major League Baseball decision. Watch the tape. Very heavy-handed message. It's kind of like Biden would say he's not dictating that local jurisdictions can't have single-family housing zoning anymore. He's not dictating. He's just making it impossible because of the money being dangled in front of the local officials. Uh, you'll end up with no single family zoning. Uh, media looks most ridiculous of all, ridiculous of all, constant labeling of Georgia as a voters, as voter suppression leg legislation, flat out dishonest and deceitful, yet corporate wokus, yeah, you know who they are, yeah, know nothing but what the New York Times mm -hmm. says or what the relentless left-wing mob says, and they just pile on, willfully ignorant or dishonest. 
All this is simply ruling class America determined to shut down unrest over election fraud, maybe having the opposite of the intended effect. Americans see through the lies. On the infrastructure bill, the Marxist Trojan horse to end home ownership. The Senate parliamentarian has ruled Democrats can use reconciliation to pass the infrastructure bill, meaning avoiding the filibuster threat. The bill is equipped to impose the Marxist vision of housing for America while we sleep. We are asleep at the wheel on this. Single family home neighborhoods in America are too nice and comfortable. Therefore, they are the enemy of the left. Marxism and socialism requires that no one should have the right to work hard, earn money, and move to a nicer home. All should be equal. Link between work and reward must be severed for the Marxists to prevail. Egalitarian, high-density urban housing is the ideal for the masses, accomplished by subsidizing the end of single-family zoning, ending American suburbs. And this is the mission of the left. Marxism, easier to control the masses if they are housed like masses. This is fundamental transformation that will hit millennials hard. Will they wake up in time? And that, my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so very much for tuning in every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. Can we talk truth about America? Can you-